Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of January 11th, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Today marks the podcast return from a holiday winter break hiatus. And not coincidentally, I should say, the return of the Texas legislature as lawmakers gather in Austin today to kick off the 87th Texas legislature. I'm joined this week by Josh Blank, Research Director of the Texas Politics Project. Welcome back, Josh. Thanks for having me back. Are you excited about the beginning of the legislature? I'm always excited about the beginning of the legislature. (laughs) Oh, you know, you you know. You know, it'll get, we'll see. The question really is, I think from now on, you should ask me, are you still excited about the legislature? We'll try that question well, later. I think the funny thing about that is that, you know, as is, I think, kind of universal in people that are engaged with this, you know, you get kind of cranked up for the beginning of it, even if you're jaded and cynical, and then nothing happens for a long time, which well, I think we'll be probably talking about, you know, if not by next week, certainly by the week after. We have this conversation, it seems, I mean, it's always like around these transition periods, but like, you know, when the legislature starts, I'm pumped for the legislature. I get less and less pumped as time goes on. I get disgusted at a few points, scared, but then it ends. And then I think, God, I can't wait for elections to start. And then we get to the elections. By the end of the election, I'm like, God, can we just get to the legislature? So it's sort of this back and it's a whipsaw effect, but for brief periods of time, I'm very excited. This is one of them. Yeah. I, you know, I think what I've learned at least about myself over time is that I, you know, I, I have a lot more sustained interest in the legislature probably than I do in elections. By the time elections are over, I'm really ready for elections to be over, even though there is that, that bit of, you know, excitement and curiosity about how it's actually going to turn out, which, you know, elections actually have going for them. But nonetheless, Usually by about mid-October, I just can't wait for it to. Usually about the, about the time early voting starts, I'm kind of like, yeah, this could just be over now. I wish they were just voting today. Um, so speaking of elections, a lot has happened since our last podcast of 2020 in mid-December. <laughs> Most notably, the violence at the U.S. Capitol, the, the day of the ratification of the Electoral College vote, which as we record this was last week. Um, we'll no doubt talk about that some uh, since is is one of the more consequential things of, of our lifetimes. Um, but we do want to start and kind of frame this discussion um, with the context of the legislature and the factors and forces that we expect to loom over the politics of the legislative process as it unfolds, at least initially over the next 140 days, though I think there's universal anticipation of a special set at least one special session for redistricting which we'll we'll touch on so i i think we begin where we begin so many of these discussions which is with the partisan polarization and and the fragmentation in the political system 
in Texas, which is, you know, really now to some degree overshadowed by by what's going on nationally, but nonetheless has has been present in Texas for a long time, has shaped legislative politics for for quite some time. Um and, and I think is looming over the opening of the legislature today. I think, you know, in some ways most directly in you know the fact that there is, as we go into this, uh, a lot. There has been a lot of concern about whether there would be uh, uh, protests, um, unrest outside the legislature. Um, you know, given what we know about apparent threats to all fifty state capitals uh, in the wake of what happened at the national capital last week, at least thus far today, knock on wood. While there have been, you know, some protesters present at the opening of the legislature, there doesn't seem to have, you know, been much of a materialization of a of big protests. But nonetheless, the, the polarization is is really hovering over this, and partisan politics are really hovering over this. I mean, you know, what what comes to mind for you, Josh, when you think about what what we're expecting on that? Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, there's two things that I've been thinking about in the context of polarization, you know, and the legislature right now. I mean, I think one is, you know, how quaint is the idea that the Texas legislature is a little bit different? I mean, you, you prefaced it with the fact that, like, you know, look, partisan polarization is a part of politics at this point. It always is. Um you know, in some ways there's a little bit, you know, like everything Texas related, there's a certain amount of, of Texas pride, you know, justified or not around the fact that Texas, you know, does things a bit differently. By differently that, you know, what they're usually, what people are usually saying when they say this, like they say, well, it's, it's less partisan then. You know, they point to the fact that, you know, there'll be Democratic committee chairs in the Republican controlled House as an example. There might be Democratic vice chairs in the Republican controlled Senate as again, as another example. And then the thing that, you know, I've been thinking about a lot that people bring up so consistently is that, you know, and I think the now speaker Phelan brought up in his interview with uh, Ross Reams, or not with Ross, with uh, Evan Smith yesterday, the Tribune. Yeah, the shorter this, one. The shorter one. Well, it's not, first of all, between the two of us here, with one of us being very <laughs> tall and one of us being not, I'm going to defend Evan. <laughs> that was in a that little say, meta. Okay. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend Evan in that and say Evan is average, just like me. That, that time <laughs> Josh defended Evan. <laughs> As being average, yes. <laughs> but, but 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 Speaker Phelan brought up yesterday this idea that I've heard a lot, which is you know, well, there's a lot of issues that don't really fall along partisan lines. You know, what people usually refer to is is uh, you know issues that fall along urban rural lines. And I guess one of the things I'm wondering going to this session is like, you know, how much is that really going to be the case? I mean, there's there's a really basic logic to that in my mind. It's usually around education, but it's really also about resource allocation, ultimately, you know, if you have a highway funding formula, transportation plan, you have a water plan, you have education funding formulas, ultimately, you know, geography and access is going to have a bigger impact than partisanship on issues like that. Um, but, you know, I wonder as we head into this session, you know, and as, and also as the parties are becoming so clearly associated either with being urban or not, and has that become so sort of suffused in the politics I wonder how easy it is to maintain it. So that's sort of the first thing I'm, I'm thinking about in terms of the effective polarization on the legislative session. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that's kind of always and everywhere been kind of dependent on the agenda. And there's a certain, mm -hmm. we've seen a certain rhythm to that in in the last few sessions in which, um, you know, there's, there's there, there have been periods where people have felt like it was going very well. 
And, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of partisan conflict or it wasn't, it was at least kept to manageable levels and predictable. And, you know, depending on how far back, you know, you go, it could be something like, you know, oh, look, everyone's getting along on water or, you know, in the mm. last session, everybody's focused on education and wants to move the ball forward. But, I, you know, I find that that is always precarious. You know, all you really have to do is bring, you know, a sanctuary cities bill to the floor or an abortion bill to the floor. Yeah. Or, you know, in in this sense, you know, we're going to be talking about that, you know, and it will be muted. But I think that hovering over this session will be redistricting, which is a swelt, you know, a, a, a hornet's nest of self-interest, partisanship. And as, as we wrote in a piece today, uh, race and racial politics. So, you know, all of these things are always, you know, so, so they're a bit dependent on, on what the agenda is and, and, you know, what's, what's getting attention at the moment. And I think that the, you know, the, you know, this is going to sound like we're kicking the Republicans around, but it could be, it's been true of Democrats, I think in the past and, you know, kind of the previous party system in the state and, you know, the, the, the kind of bomb throwers on each side know this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you find issues that are divisive, a lot of time, or, or you, you find open conflict in the House or the Senate, a lot of the time it's, be, it's because it's being driven by people that are trying to push an agenda that is disruptive. And so I think that's one of the big questions that we're going to have going forward this time is well, whether and, and- that will continue or not. Well, and the thing and, is, you know, I mean, who, who will, you know, who will, who will shape the agenda to some degree? Yeah, there's a who will shape the agenda. But the other piece of it is something, you know, an aspect of this, which is, you know, with the, and we'll get to this probably, but with the revenue estimate out yesterday and essentially the, about the same amount of money available this time as last time, which essentially means less money due to population growth. And of course, the increasing needs associated with COVID and the economic fallout, um, you know, the sort of let's say polarization, uh, you know, softening that usually seems to occur around resource allocation around the state. Ultimately, there's not going to be resources to allocate. This isn't a year in which you're going to see a big water bill or a big transportation bill or a big education bill. What you're going to see is a lot of people trying to make things less bad than they could be. But also this speaks to your thing, which is, you know, if you're looking ahead to the 2022 elections, which ultimately everybody, you know, who's in politics is, even if they say they aren't, it's these sorts of issues that you're bringing up, the divisive abortion bill, some sort of a sanctuary cities bill, something having to do with, with gun access or you know, gun control, whatever, that comes that, – that members put forward to be able to achieve political goals and ultimately in a session right. where they're not going to have a lot of opportunities. Well, and, and they are harder to you – know, they are harder to you know, engage in kind of divisible politics in the way that financial issues are. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and fiscal issues at the end of the day, whether there's a lot of money to hang it, hand out yeah. or finances are tight when it comes down to the, to the final, you know, crunch mm-hmm. on trying to put together winning coalitions, if you need to do that, or to disincentivize disruptive forces, you know, who try to use, you know, if you will, the legislative weapons of the week. Right to scuttle and or thwart majorities, you know, it's just easier to do that when you are talking about, you know, fiscal issues that are ultimately divisible, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. 
it's it's you know it's 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 hard to engage in distributive politics and in you know horse trading when you are sort of trying to when you are trying to balance issues of racial justice, shall we say? Shall we say, for example, <laughs> you right. know, so. So, you know, so let, let, let's, you know, we might as well, since you started that, we might as well just stick with that well, a little bit. So, I can, mean, can I, I, in terms of the budget, I mean. Can I just do one other thing on polarization real quick? Yeah, Is sure. Is it okay? Yeah. One other. The other thing I've just been thinking about is, you know, that was an internal consideration, right? I mean, the way in which the legislature either does or does not like sort of foment this, you know, polarization we see elsewhere. You know, the, the sort of an external looking thing that I wonder about going forward, which is, you know, when you look at polarization at the national level, I mean, we had this conversation about this earlier in the week. It's really remarkable how devoid of content it is. I mean, actually, I mean, there's some very big, you know, sort of the issues we're talking about. There's some big issues like gun control, de- devoid social of policy justice. content, yeah, de- devoid of policy yeah. content. Yeah, I mean, but but I mean, but for the most part, you know, the the main thing that seems to drive polarization at the national level is really a negative partisanship, right? It's it's really about negative attitudes towards the other side, real or imagined, right? I mean, whether, you know, again, it's, it's, it's either, either whether they're justifiable or based, you know, wholly on a very, you know, let's say contained media environment. Ultimately, it's this negative partisanship that's really driving things in a way that makes it so that you can't have compromise. You can't work on policy. You, I mean, like it's a good example, like everybody wants infrastructure at the national level. We can't have compromise between the parties, is what it seems at this point. The question is, I, you know, and what I worry about is to what extent that suffuses the Texas process as time goes on. You know, I mean, it's the yeah, first day of session, I mean, and everybody's real happy, and everybody's backslapping. You can watch the legislature, but you know, how much do you keep insulated from some of these outside pressures that are exploding in really ugly ways at the national level? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess I, I would think two things about that. I mean, I think you know, one. And I, you know, I don't know if this is my own crankiness about this or my own, you know. I'll tell. I'll let you know. You know, <laughs> you know the 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 mood to be, you know, the the impulse to be contrary about Texans' views of themselves. Sometimes, I mean, I've always kind of felt like, you know, this idea that well, Texas is just so different because we have some Democratic chairs, and mm-hmm. you know, is a little bit overstated. Mm-hmm. You know, to the extent that. You know, the policy result of that has not been, you know, a history, you know, in, in the last decade or 15 years, a history of great bipartisan policymaking or, or, you know, a compromise in the composition or in the, in the, in the content of public policy or, or political discourse in the state. And so, you know, well, that's all well and good. And I, and I think that it, you know, it, it, it does, reflect a consensus on some of the fundamentals in the policy realm in the state that doesn't have a whole lot to do with the great comedy that everybody feels or, right. you know, so there, I mean, so there's that or comedy. Um, so, I mean, you know, so, so, you know, there's that. And then, you know, to the other point a bit, you know, I think there is this sense, and this is kind of, um, you know, one of the underlying drivers of the piece we posted today one of the things that is so uh, uh, troubling about the kind of hyperpartisanship and polarization and the sorting of the parties mm-hmm. that we're seeing at the national level right now is that da- and now because of some of the reasons you talked about the media environment, et cetera, it's almost like it's a structural force unto its own. And that's the concern. I mean, that's why I say I wonder yeah. the extent to which 
we start to see a little bit more, you know, I mean, nothing that's unfamiliar in Texas politics. I mean, ultimately, you know, you are going to have, you know, someone's going to file, I mean, just as an example, someone's going to file a constitutional carry bill decision if they haven't already. Right. And, you know, yeah, they and that's, already have. Yeah, right. I'm sure they already have. So, so this is part of part and parcel of the process has always been, but the question is, you know, does the group, you know, who's demanding, let's say absolute fealty either on the left or the right, honestly, does yeah. that group grow in this session? Because we've kind of observed over time is sort of the group of the, the discontents within the, let's say within the, the governing majority has actually been shrinking. Yeah. Right. But I mean, until we actually see a session take place and actually see some, you know, some votes, it's hard to really suss out what that, how big that group is. Yeah. And, and I guess as I think about the session, you know, that we're looking at right now, you know, there are, you know, there are two factors that help, you know, I think, um, you know, work counter to this, you know, the growing structural force of, of hyperpartisanship mm. and, and polarization, you know, and one is just, the realities of the legislative process in which mm. people work over multiple sessions, over a period of time, over a period of conditions, um, on the on big public policy issues, or even on just their own issues to yeah. get things done. I mean, I think you know, you think about the progress on public education last night, mm-hmm. last time. Now, on one hand, we've sort of been a little snotty about people. Patty or I have people patting themselves on the back for making progress, but you know, it not exactly being a game changer per se. And so one thing I think we'll be watching, we have to watch this time, and this is very much out in the ether, you know, in, in the advocacy in the public interest world. But I think from an institutional perspective is, you know, if we can hold the line on education and, you know, if not, and, and, and we see some continuity from the last session, in trying to do better on not just the amount of money going into public education, but in the, you know, the structure of the funding process and, mm-hmm. and just improving the way the jury rigged public education funding system in the state works. Well, then, you know, that's a sign that, that something pretty good is going on um, and a sign that, you know, the deeper rhythms of the legislative process can continue. Um, you know, and I think, we, you know, you can watch a whole range of, of other smaller issues on that, whether it's it's transportation, which we've been looking at more closely. Do people begin to, you know, continue to chip away at some of the structural issues in, tra- in transportation, particularly maybe some of the process things that, that aren't related or don't require a ton of money? Do they continue to hold the line on the progress that was made a few sessions, you know, a few sessions ago on transportation? Mm-hmm. Um, in, even at the smaller level, you know, you know, does, does the marijuana decriminalization and legalization fight, and I hate to even mention that because it makes people all, you know, starry eyed, Yeah. but do you see a little more incremental movement on that, that suggests that the process is kind of working, well, you know, in the incremental way? And I, and I don't mean like, you know, and I, I certainly don't expect any big moves on on marijuana legalization per se, as long as Dan Patrick is Lieutenant governor. Um, but you know, does the list of medical uses get slightly expanded? Right. Well, I mean, do we see a little more progress on decrim? So all those things I think are kind of going on underneath in the legislature while we're thinking about these big forces of, of, of polarization. And I think that those big forces are troubling and, and, and 
influential and as we wrote today and color everything but there well, are know, counter forces out there yeah but I, mean, I don't you, think those counter forces are because texas is special i think the counter forces and i think it's important in the moment are come from the way that democratic legislative politics work however imperfect they are well, I mean, you raised the point, you know, in the offset statement, right, that most of what the Texas legislature is dealing with is about business versus business issues. And these aren't necessarily monetary issues. I mean, for the legislature, these are about regulations. These are they're, they're about monetary for the stakeholders. Indirectly, <laughs> indirectly. Yeah. Well, they're monetary. not fiscal issues. They're not fiscal issues for right. government in most cases. They're not fiscal issues yeah. for government, right? And so, I mean, ultimately, you bring the fact that that is a big part of this. And I think, you know, part of the uncertainty in all this, I think, that a lot of people are facing right now is, in a, you know, is there's an, I think it's safe to assume that all that stuff is going to keep happening, right? I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot of bills filed, a lot of things going on. But I think, you know, we're sitting here at the beginning of the session, you're thinking, like, well, there's not going to be a lot of access to committee hearings. You know, uh, there might be a limited agenda. And then the other piece to this, which is, you know, floating out there is, I think is the question is, does something kind of derail this? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a lot of somethings out there right now. Exactly. So what are some of these other somethings, I guess? Right. Well, you know, we kind of skipped over a little bit, uh, the, the COVID pandemic. And I think, you know, that not skipped over, but we haven't gotten to that yet. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, the COVID pandemic is looming extremely, you know, large over the legislature. Although, you know, opening day, you don't get any kind of substantive indications or you get very few. They're all heavily coded. And we saw, you know, a few references to the difficulties, you know, Faced of the business. last year from the speaker and from the governor. Um, but not a lot of specifics. And again, I don't want to put too high a burden on what is essentially a ceremonial day. But I also think that, you know, there is going to be a fundamental uh, uh, confrontation at the legislature at some point between people that are, if not denying it, are, you know, and we call them, you know, they are going to be Republican elected officials for the most part who have to manage part of their constituency that our polling has shown, and we've talked about multiple times on this podcast and in print and everywhere, have become, you know, less and less convinced that the the pandemic is a serious public health matter and a serious policy matter. Um, and the reality that it remains a threat, and I and I think the you know that that is going to be out there, and I think that the the presence of a vaccine now you know, complicates this in ways that are, you know, ultimately really unfortunate. Obviously not that the presence of a vaccine is unfortunate. It's, it's great. No, but it's changed um, the in, calculus. In a pretty monumental way. But the fact that, you know, the vaccine is not something that we can snap our fingers and, you know, the human and physical and economic costs of the pandemic are just going to go away. And that's, the timing of that with the legislature being in session, I, I fear, gives Republican elected officials a way of avoiding conflict with a substantial minority of their base hmm. by waiting it out. And I think the costs of waiting it out are actually pretty awful. What I'm going to see is is whether the emphasis in terms of how the legislature addresses COVID, because remember, they haven't had a chance to really play a part in the state's response at all up until this point. And what I'm really curious about with respect to this is, you know, 
how much is the emphasis of the legislation focused on, you know, let's say, you know, let's say fixing problems in terms of the state's response going forward and how much of it is about correcting perceived missteps that have already taken place. And, and that could go in any direction, right? But, but in particular, what I'm thinking about here mostly is, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in keeping, you know, local officials from overstepping some, you know, arbitrary threshold in response to the pandemic. I think we're going to see a lot of that. And that's a way actually that, you know, legislators without, while waiting out the pandemic can also address it, but in a way that's not really going to actually make the state more prepared going forward. It's actually just going to be, I think, I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of hand tying of local officials at this point. Well, right. I mean, I, I think what that speaks to is that, you know, I mean, that is going to be, you know, there is going to be a bucket of kind of institutional policy responses and implementation responses that are going to be, I think, probably all things being equal, uh, emanating mostly from the Republican Party in terms of the kinds of, you know, they'll be billed as clarifications, but the kind of, mm-hmm. you know, hamstringing of local authorities that you're talking about. And also then from a, from a smaller subset of, of uh-huh. Republican officials, but also some Democrats efforts to, shall we say, clarify the limits of executive power uh, in response to public health emergencies and emergencies writ large. And we, there have been bills introduced. There's already all kinds of bills filed in both of those areas. And then there will be another, you know, bucket of bills that will be about ameliorating the effects and thinking more about public health policy and social policy in terms of the impact uh, of the pandemic that will speak to, you know, if, if possible, you know, the, the terms of funding and the structure of public health delivery and public health services, public health authorities, um, I place my money that on a good interim study. In, and that will be mostly in the realm of Democrats. Um, and I would expect, you know, just given the structure of, of, of the legislature, that that first group of institutional measures is going to get much more attention from this legislature than that, that latter group of social policy. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not to over-elaborate the obvious, but I, I think that, but, but I also think that some of that is going to be a little bit contingent on the pace of vaccination mm-hmm. and the path that the pandemic continues to take. Well, um, also, you know, also, and I think also, that's one, you know, it's one of the reasons that it's both, you know, good policy and good politics for the governor and, and, you know, the Republican led executive branch right now to be doing everything they can to, to accelerate vaccination and, right. you know, move this issue off the table. Well, know, it's not, not to as, be too bloodless about it. Yeah, and it's not as though you know we're sitting here predicting the, you know the emphasis of legislation. We're just talking about some of the possibilities. I would add, you know, if after today's you know uh, opening day festivities, it turns out that a bunch of legislators come down with COVID, right, or yeah. even in the next few weeks, that's going to certainly, obviously, in addition to throwing the legislative session into you know a certain complicated <laughs> uh, maneuvering space going forward, it also could affect the policy process yeah, sure. going forward just right all right although you know I, I i think we can sometimes you know i mean 
you know, we can sometimes overestimate the degree to which people's individual experiences then shape their, I mean, at, I le- at least in terms of COVID, but I don't think there are individual may be the experiences, which it's yeah. the public discussion. It's the idea of, yeah. you know, you've got a legislature where let's say 20 people come down with COVID in a, in a couple week period, you know, it changes the discussion about how they're behaving. So, well, and, and I think the other, you know, unknown factor there is, you know, how does, how does the, the, the COVID policy discussion change in Texas as a result of the change in presidential leadership, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, look, you know, there are again, forces pressing in opposite directions in that, in that way. On one hand, you know, Donald Trump has been a, you know, powerful purveyor of, you know, minimizing of minimizing the the pandemic and minimizing the impact of the COVID and the seriousness of the pandemic. You know, he will not have the bully pulpit he had before. And, you know, he will not have his Twitter account, interestingly well, enough. A and big honestly, change he'll have a lack we of interest. I mean, he's already displayed a lack of interest, but ultimately, once it's not his responsibility. Well, well his lack of it, I mean, but the thing is, his lack of it, yeah, his lack of interest was a presidential signal. His lack of interest will no longer be a presidential signal. Right. right? So, yeah. Um, his lack of you know, response so, is not know, a point of discussion. So there's that, but there may, you know, but then we're also going to have to see how the relationship between, you know, rhetoric in Texas and, and, and rhetoric at the national level, you know, how they how they collide i mean well if if if, you know if if the biden administration you know comes in and really you know pushes hard on on states and localities on you know public health policy and the read in texas is that pushback is called for then trump's absence gets sort of you know balanced by the fact that you know you know texas political leadership you know, reverts to the expected form and, you know, basically says the opposite of everything coming out of Washington, D.C. Well, and that's the other big, you know, one of the other big contextual factors here, right, is that, you know, we've gone from from Republican control of the presidency and the Senate to unified Democratic control in Washington. And as you know, we wrote today, it's, it's not too long ago that Governor Abbott was Attorney General Abbott saying that he wakes up every day and sues the Obama right. administration, that that was his job. Ultimately, you know, we should expect an orientation back to that. Uh, we already brought up this idea, you know, I think of the relationship between the legislature and the cities, which is, you know, I think generously can be described as contentious at this point, um, you know, mostly under democratic control. And, you know, I think you are bringing up the sort of overarching superstructure, which is the state's position vis-a-vis the federal government here is related to COVID. If the government takes a strong position on COVID, how reflexively is our Texas political leader is just going to push back, Right. Um, you know, and the effect that's going to have actually on fighting the virus is going to be interesting, right? Because at least when Donald Trump was in office, even if he was minimizing the virus, it was still in everybody's interest, especially, I mean, I would say, especially Republican executives around the country to do a good job containing the virus and to really, you know, work even if quietly to try to try to do the best they could under the circumstances. Now, you know, they've got basically a, a fraction, you know, not even a fraction, let's say a faction within the party, right, that denies the reality of COVID. But also they're going to be hearing public health advice coming almost uniformly from uh, from Democrats. And I mean, really from right. the Democratic administration. So yeah. it really makes actually containment more complicated, you know, within the politics yeah, no, that of this. Was, yeah. yeah, okay. We agree then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we got that worked out. Oh, uh, sure. You know, but now, now I know we do. Okay. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I think that, 
another facet of the, the as we move forward on COVID and fighting the pandemic under these new conditions with Donald Trump absent the scene and a unified federal government under democratic control or democratic leadership anyway, um, is the template of race. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, race has been, you know, the discussion of race that emerged in the summer around policing, criminal justice, and uh, the, the killing of George Floyd and the protest afterwards, you know, we've written a lot about that. We wrote about it again today. Um, that's also been a big factor in uh, the, the COVID pandemic, given the disparate impact on communities of color. But it's also something that unfortunately, you know, reinforces to some degree the cleavage because of the sorting of the, you know, the, the, the partisan cleavage and, and partisanship because of the distribution, the racial composition of each of the parties. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, race and, and, you know, is going to be hovering over this session. I mean, it's intrinsic to politics in the state, but I, I think it is going to be one of those things and we kind of glancingly touched on this earlier that is also going to, to be present in the session and is going to be probably impossible to downplay, even though I think that, you know, obviously the, the, the majority party is going to want to do that. Maybe. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I mean, at least I mean, in, I mean, look, well, you know, I mean, I, other, other than the policing agenda, right? Well, that's exactly right. But that's, but that's the issue here, right? I mean, there's sort of two, you know, fundamental problem. I mean, difficulties with this issue in Texas and elsewhere, but I mean, it's really clear in Texas, right? Which is, you know, for Democrats who overwhelmingly see, problems between the relationship problems with the relationships between uh police and the communities of color that they serve well republicans don't view that or don't view this as a problem and furthermore democrats are clearly much more likely also to sort of see you know social justice issues more broadly than policing right ultimately to the extent that you know democratic legislators feel you know really beholden to their constituents if not the moment to make you know good faith efforts to improve social justice after you know basically everything that happened over the summer and the year and the protests and the movements, well you know Republicans just spent much of the fall campaigning on supporting police officers, and so you know those things don't I mean look those things don't need to be at odds with each other I mean let, you know I want to say right. that because it's true but ultimately they've been constructed in such a way so that they are. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, I think even as much as it's easy to say, well, maybe, you know, people are want to keep, you know, let's say keep cool around this area or not let it boil over. It's just, it just seems like an air, an issue in which it's going to be hard for You know, I would say it'd be hard to have a ceasefire at this point on this issue. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think at a, at a basic level, you know, Republicans, you say Republicans campaign, many Republicans, particularly in the legislature campaigned on especially in suburban districts. You know, supporting the police. Um, and there have already been many bills filed that are important to many Democrats about a very different vision of, shall we say, police reform, mm-hmm. um, as well as, you know, other issues that are related, you know, that are, you know, engage, you know, that raise the issue of race, public monuments, you know, other mm-hmm. things, but also, frankly, again, healthcare delivery in response to COVID because of the disparate impact on communities of color. So I think, you know, 
you know, I, ju- I should probably, you know, re- you know, revise my remarks so that it's not that nobody, you know, that, that people are not going to want to raise the issue. They're not going to want it. They're going to, everyone's going to have a dip, such a fundamentally different view of how the issue plays out. And can you really find the, some kind of, you know, discourse where you can, you can implement policies in this way or even debate them in a way. Um, well, and, that's, I, and, that's, know, I, and that's the real challenge, right? Because yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, I mean, I think the last couple of days there's, you know, there's an announcement by the Biden administration about how they would, you know, think about distribution of, of resources. And it mentioned race and gender as a particular factor for small businesses. And, and much of the response, you know, on the right was that's racist. Setting aside that claim, the point being that, you know, for most Democrats looking to advance social justice, whether in policing or otherwise, you know, generally the modern sort of take on this is that you can't be race neutral anymore. You have to acknowledge where there are disparities and you have to address them head on. But the reality is, is that within the Republican Party, the response to that is, well, that approach is racist. Right. Not and, a lot of room, not. not a lot of room to maneuver there. Yeah. And, and, and I, and so I think that, you know, that, you know, that, that discourse is just lurk, you know, that discursive kind of conflict, which is a real, also a very material political conflict are both kind of lurking out there and just waiting to be activated in this, in this legislative session. And they're the kinds of, you know, the kinds of, you know, issues that are, that are going to be hard to avoid given, you know, the sense of urgency here and given the fact that, you know, this is not, this is not your regular legislative session. The, uh, the shortfall may only be about a billion dollars and not four or five, as we heard from the controller this week. Um, still but it, that, it's still going to be, you know, that that's a pretty relative judgment. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it is still going to be a, a tense session. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of, there are a lot of issues that are very fundamental to, you know, the kind of cultural identity of the state. And that brings us really, you know, also full, or cultural politics in the state. And that really brings us full circle to where we started and what has been going on in Washington, mm-hmm. because, you know, at, at the end of the day, when you look at, you know, the ground forces that were invading the Capitol and the composition of those groups, there is a racial component to that, that is undeniable and is bubbling under into, you know, the, the most discontented elements that are refusing to accept the transition and that are, you know, for the time being located more or less either within or adjacent to the Republican party. And And that's why, you know, that's why, you know, we saw Ted Cruz take the leadership he did in questioning the results of the election. Mm -hmm. That's why we saw more than half of the Republicans in the Texas, you know, congressional delegation, also voting voting to to object to the, the electoral college results and to and taking place in that and in for many of them in their public performances you know being you know for lack of a better term as trumpy as possible and repeating the notion that it these their constituents had been robbed and there is a you know there's a racial component to that that is fueling a lot of this that has to do with some of the fundamentals in both American politics, but in state politics for which, you know, we started by talking, well, this urban rural divide, I mean, 
the urban rural divide is in part about a kind of, you know, cultural positioning or a culture, you know, mm-hmm. different cultural milieus, but it's also very much about race. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, re- I'm reluctant to say this, but you know, it, it's one of these things you study political science and, and for whatever reason, race and politics is sort of, it's, it's, it's so very, somewhat separate. I mean, it's a subset of American politics. It's a different thing. But I mean, I think, you know, in the last few years, if not in all of American history, I keep finding myself coming back to the notion, isn't all American politics about race and politics? Well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's I mean, been a lot written in recent years about the fact that, you know, the fact that we separate the discussion of race and politics from quote unquote political science or mainstream political science is actually an artifact of what we're talking about. Ooh, (laughs) right. So, you know, one thing that you said that relates to this conversation, I just want to, I want to make sure you, you, you hit it is also, um, and redistricting. Yeah. Well, and and, yeah. And, and redistricting again, fundamental, you know, two things about redistricting that, that you raise, right? One it's basically fundamental to everybody. It's fundamental to the electoral process. There's some mm-hmm. some really good language about that um, in Steve Bickerstaff's posthumously published review of redistricting that I've been reading at. And um, you know, but it's you know, but the two points he makes are you know, there's really it's really the way that district lines are drawn are a fundamental aspect of democratic representation, and to the to the extent that we tolerate gerrymandering, we're tolerating compromises of democratic representation. And then the second point being that in almost all instances, race is fundamental to gerrymandering and redistricting, particularly in Texas, given our demographics. I have to say, we're <laughs> I like that. We're tolerating compromises of de- democratic representation. Sounds so quaint in the moment we're sitting in. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yes, it is. And since we're, you know, the, the underlying fundamentals are, are being, have been questioned right now. Uh, they, they announced today that the legislature, that the, the two chambers will have organizational and rules meetings over the next couple of days. House, uh, I didn't hear this on the Senate, but I, the House is adjourned, I think, until January 26th, at least for now. Uh, I will, you know, we will see if even that they hit that date, depending on, as you say, what happens with, you know, everybody being together today and what happens out in the environment, uh, uh, given the pandemic. Um, so we'll have a chance to return to some of these issues. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks to our crew in the liberal arts development studio in the college of liberal arts, university of Texas at Austin. We had, uh, some, some mid show technical difficulties that I bet none of you will even notice because these guys are Guys and gals are so good. So thanks for listening, and we will be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. Uh, Be safe and be well. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.